Welcome to I Communicate on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. To join the conversation, call 508-871-7000. Now, here's your host, Mark Altman. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the I Communicate Mindset Go Radio Show. I'm your host, Mark Altman. Happy to be back with you here on a Thursday afternoon. And I got to tell you, before we get started and I introduce our special guest, I have one request, everybody. I'm asking you to be mindful, and I'm hoping this show is a one-hour respite from the coronavirus because, boy, it is just taking over the entire world right now. You can't look anywhere, hear anything without hearing somebody or something talking about the coronavirus. So I'm hoping this is an entertaining hour which allows you to take your mind off it. I feel very fortunate today. You know, this show is about how to be a more confident and effective communicator at work, home, in school, and certainly when competing in sports, which is a huge passion of mine. And we have a special guest today, former NFL referee Jim Tunney, who is uh, great, I love that, uh, who is also uh, known, nicknamed the Dean of NFL Referees. Jim um, has 31, 30 years of experience as an educator, 31 years as an NFL referee. He works with Fortune 500 companies on team building, leadership, peak performance, motivation. He has written several books, and he has 29 postseason assignments, including 10 championship games and three Super Bowls. Jim, thank you so much for joining the show today. Mark, delighted to be with you. How are things back in the Massachusetts area? Well, Jim, they're okay. They're not as warm as where you are out in sunny California, right? We're about in mid-50s right now, but it's bright sunshine and uh, no snow and uh, very, very enjoyable. I love it. Now, Jim, before we get started today, I, I, saw, I did some research on you before the show, and I've got to verify something. Were you the one that created the symbol for an extra point or field goal being good? Were you the one that created with the hands up in the air? No, I, I, everybody did that uh, before I got in. But uh, what, what was special to me was, and I don't know how it happened, but uh, after a touchdown or a field goal or a try for point, uh, the referee turns to the camera and signals hands overhead. And as I did, I would raise my hands up over my head with my fist closed, and as it got to the top, I would open my hands up. Ah, okay, okay. That's great. uh, Somebody had pointed out that was unique, and nobody ever done that before. I don't know anybody does it now, but it... uh, it wasn't anything special. It was just, just one of those things I did. Just a natural occurrence for me. You know, it's interesting, Jim. You know, um, you've had such a successful career in so many different areas. And what's interesting to me about NFL officials, more so than the other sports, is you're, you're, they're very recognizable. I mean, their names are always on the TV. Um, and, and I feel like they're on TV so often during the game um, was that an adjustment for you at all, is becoming a recognized public figure? And and frankly, part two of my question is, did it ever work against you when people recognized you? And not really against me. I can get that out of the way right away. No, uh, people occasionally will say, well, you sure blew that call. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just laugh it off. And, and, and they don't sometimes don't really even see what you saw. Uh, it's almost like a the traffic accident where the blue car hit the white car and the white car hit the blue car, and officials are looking at it in, in very nanoseconds. They don't have a lot of time to think about it. Don't 
don't think, don't let your thinking screw up the play. Just see what happens and, and make the call. And, you, and it, it's, it's worked out fine for me. The, the other part of that of being recognized is, is, is it's amazing to me. I had a, have a grandson who's at DePaul University right now, and, and uh, someone asked him his name, and he said Ryland, Ryland Tunney, and he said, uh, and he said my grandfather, Jim Tunney, was a referee in the NFL for 30 years. He said, you are the grandson of Jim Tunney. <laughs> I thought, that, that, that kind of thing just blows me away. I, I don't think people recognize officials, but they surely do. That's right. Yeah, so, so Jim, you know, I know when we talked previously you share with me how you started out as a school teacher, eventually became a principal and then superintendent. And I know you had a huge passion as a, to be a coach growing up. You know, one thing I think we none, a lot of people don't really understand is what the path is like to become an official. You know, the hard work and, and training you have to do. So could you educate us on what that road is like to eventually become an NFL official? I've been in sports all my life. I was uh... My mom got mad at me because I come late from dinner being on the playground all afternoon. And she'd say, 6 o'clock, hands washed, hair combed, and sitting at the table. Don't be late. <laughs> so that, that, that taught me about discipline and timing and things. But I wanted to be a, a coach. My dad was a coach. I never really thought I would follow his path. But I thought, it's the thing I like to do is coach people. So when I went to college, I uh, became a physical education major, and I was a a teacher and a coach for a number of years, and and uh, then I moved into administration. I'm still coaching people. I was coaching people as a, a principal. I was coaching a teacher to coach the kids. As a superintendent, I was coaching the principal to coach the teachers to coach the kids. My whole idea was being on the school ground. But when I went to school, at lunchtime, when the teacher had a cafeteria, they all have, have lunch, I would go and walk around the school ground and talk to the kids. And, and they ask about the NFL, and they ask about this or that. And that was my whole goal, was to how can I help people become better at what they do? And that's why I left the school building and went into professional speaking, so now I can help associations and corporations communicate and talk about the people I knew who were great communicators, people like uh, Vince Lombardi or Don Chu or Tom Landry or John Madden or Bill Walsh, people like that. I saw them communicate with their team to make their team successful and learn a lot from those people. So, so Jim, you know, following up on that, you know, I'm an enormous Vince Lombardi fan, but just the names you mentioned, Landry and Lombardi and people like that, what are the, what are the commonalities that you saw that you would feel confident calling them a great communicator? What, what are those characteristics that are your top tops on the list? Probably top of that list, Mark, would be uh, they were honest with people. They were they, they had a sense of integrity. Uh, Tom Landry, Don Shula, people like that were, were flat out honest, and they they were never trying to hurt you. They were being critical of you so that they could help you, and they were able to get that across to people that to the players that they're not trying to hurt them. I'm here to help you, but I've got to be honest with you. If you missed a block, you didn't do that. And you watched Vince Lombardi being a fan of his and do that famous drawing on blackboard will have a seal here and a seal here and we'll run right up and you know and, and you can very well see what he's trying to get a, get across and all the players that I've talked to that played for Lombardi the Bart Stars the Jerry Kramers the people like that they really uh, really while well, he was tough on them I mean really tough on them they love that man 
So, Jim, uh, and for, for, for our listeners, if you'd like to call in and have any questions for Jim Tunney, the number is 508-871-7000. Jim, you know, one question I have for you, being from New England, uh, we, ha- we are in Patriot Nation. So question for you is, two-part question, have you had any interactions with Bill Belichick? And if so, wh- what is your take on him relative to the Landrys and the, and the Lombardis and Shulas? When uh, Coach Belichick was uh, coaching in the league, he was an assistant. Uh, I was I left the league in 1991, so Coach Belichick was still an assistant. So I never really had a great interaction with him as a head coach. And uh, of course, they've had some difficulties with Spygate and with Deflategate and all that sort of thing. And uh, I'm sorry that happened because I have a great respect for Coach Belichick and for Tom Brady what they're doing. I don't know if they intensely tried to cheat. Uh, I'm not aware of all that. I'm supposed to read the papers and you only know, can believe what I'm about half of what you read the papers anyway. So I I, uh, I think they've done a great job creating a winning environment up there, and people love to play for him. So that's the part that gets me is that if you like playing for the coach, and not just because he's winning, because he's the kind of guy you like playing for Jim, let me ask you this. Speaking of cheating, you know, football has done a pretty good job staying away from cheating scandals, especially compared to baseball and even in the NBA that had the uh, point-shaving scandal uh, back with the referee back then. Question for you is, with, with football moving to Las Vegas, with the Raiders moving to Las Vegas, do you have any concerns around the exposure to gambling and cheating with that move to Las Vegas? When I started in 1960, uh, Pete Rozelle became the commissioner that year. Commissioner Rozelle and I started in the NFL uh, the same year, 1960. And we were not allowed as officials to go into Vegas for any reason. No teams were there. We weren't allowed to go into Vegas uh, during the season because people would recognize you. As you said earlier, they recognize you. and You're an official, and they, and they try to get close to you. In fact, Art McNally, who was our supervisor of officials, for my 27 of my 31 years, and uh, Art McDowell would, would say, you know, you, you you got to avoid press, you got to avoid the, the confrontation with people who want to know, gee, is uh, Joe Montana's back really that bad? Is, is Elway going to be able to perform with the injuries he had? That type of thing. So you avoid it all the time. Uh, when I think of integrity, uh, Art McDowell does come to mind. Uh, he was so honest. He was. Uh, I've said to many people, I would play poker over the phone with Art McDowell. Wow! Wow! He would never, never cheat you. And I don't think that uh, I have a great respect for Coach Belichick and for Bob Kraft, uh, the owner. Uh, I remember when that uh, Spygate happened, and they were fined, I think, a half million dollars for the team and two hundred fifty thousand dollars for for. Uh, or Coach Belichick, I'm not sure of the right. numbers. I remember a reporter came to Bob Kraft and said, are you concerned about this? He said, no. He said, uh, uh, Commissioner is, is responsible for integrity, and he has to do that. And I said, oh, 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 wait a minute, Mr. Kraft. The commissioner is only the policeman. You are responsible for integrity. Indeed, indeed. Your players, your coaches are all responsible for the integrity, and the commissioner is only there to be the, the sheriff in town when something goes wrong, you got to step in and, and do something about it. So, so that's what I think about the NFL. I think every coach, every player, every official 
has got to be 100% honest in what they do. Okay, Jim, stay with us. We'll be right back after the break. I'm Mark Altman for the I Communicate radio show. Communicate continues on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman. Welcome back, everybody, to I Communicate. It is my privilege today to be with uh, one of the most well-known officials in the history of sports, Jim Tunney. And uh, Jim, you know, I'd like to continue our conversation. And, you know, one of the things I think about is when, when you were a referee, an NFL referee, what what was your work week like? I mean, what were you doing while you were refing? How many hours a week were you, you know, preparing for the upcoming game and so on and so forth? How many hours are there in the week? I never could, could figure that out. Yeah. Uh, I get to school on Monday morning at uh, about 7 to 7.15 in the morning before the classes start at 8 o'clock. And I was there usually till 6 or 6.30 at night uh, fighting the traffic in downtown Los Angeles. Better to come in early and stay home, stay late. Indeed. Uh, but I worked at school building Monday through Friday, and then Saturday morning I'd uh, pack my bag Friday night. But Saturday morning I'd leave home early and get a flight to drive to LA, LAX, and fly from Los Angeles to, to Boston or Miami or Detroit or Green Bay. And then Sunday night after the game I'd get on a plane, and I would fly from that location back to Los Angeles. Get in around nine o'clock. Go home. I get some sleep and be at be my school assignment on Monday morning at seven fifteen. So it's a seven day a week job, and uh, from August to December, uh, we we had some playoffs in January, but it didn't go as long as the season goes now. But I was uh, it was it was great for me. It was a, a tough time going going going, but uh, I really enjoyed it. even staying Friday night school at the school dance and then. Not getting home till nine or ten o'clock, maybe eleven, eleven, and get up early and go to the airport and fly out. I really enjoyed the change of pace, getting on an airplane. And Commissioner was was nice enough that at that time he would allow us to fly first class. So we were very nice, comfortable flying from from Los Angeles across the country, and it's five or six hours from New York or Boston and all the way back to Los Angeles. I really enjoyed that, and I, I would during that week I would always do something with the NFL, even though I was in a school building, and whether it was late afternoon or early evening or whenever I could sneak the time, I would uh, study the rules. In fact, in those days, every official had a test to take every week, and you had a written test of uh, some twenty-five to fifty questions that you thought about something would happen about rules enforcement, and uh, I would do that. So officials then were studying. Today, they're studying all the time. Now with videotapes, when they finish the game, they get a videotape of the game on a disc, and they put it in their, their uh, Microsoft Edge, and, and, and they're flying back. They're, they're looking at the game, reviewing the, the plays, and, and answering questions that uh, might have come up during the game. So. It's a, it's a full-time job. Well, that's that's where I was going, Jim. You know, it's like, you know, you, you managed to study the rules. And by the way, quick question before I ask my other question is, if you didn't pass that test back in the day you had to take, what were the consequences of that? Did you not get to officiate? <laughs> well, no one. The uh, official uh, supervisor would call you and said, 
you know, you miss half the questions on this test, and and you, you got to go back and review it. They, they would just encourage you to review it and, okay. and go back and take the so, test again. It was more of a quiz. It wasn't a matter of qualifying you. You're already qualified. They just want to keep you sharp. That's what the point of, so, of the test was, not to try to qualify you or, or re-qualify okay. you. So, Jim, so so my question for you is, back in the day when you were flying out on a Saturday and flying back on a Sunday night, you managed to be, along with several of your colleagues, tremendous officials. Why why does it have to be a full-time job now? I mean, I understand the technology is great, but what's changed in the game where the amount of prep has to be so much more significant? Replay. Videotape replay has changed the game entirely when replay started in 1986, Mark, that's when replay first came in. It actually started in 1978, but took the owners eight years before they finally decided that wow. yes, they'll use the replay. Wow! Now it's gotten to the point where everything is reviewed, every little thing that step out of bounds, and we would call it a pass incomplete. They go back and look, and yeah, he did get both feet down. This is a completed pass. So you go back and review that. And now it's so technical on the replay that uh, it's, it's tougher on officials today than it ever has been. But but the game hasn't changed. You still have 11 guys on each side. You get four down, you got to make 10 yards. You have a goal line, all that sort of thing. But the, the technology of it and the thing that the fan sees at home in his living room on his widescreen TV that you're, that you're seeing for maybe one or two seconds, and you have to make the call. And, and the replay goes over and over and over. You finally say, yeah. The guy was in bounds. It was okay, but you saw it after four or five times. You agreed. The replay has changed the game tremendously. In terms of full-time officials, they tried that one time, and it wasn't very successful. What do you do Monday through Friday if you're not working a game? Uh, NBA and hockey and baseball, those officials will work several times a week. NFL, they only work once a week. And so Monday through Friday... You're sitting in the league office in New York, and you're looking at film. That may help you a little, but it's not going to help you improve your technique on the field. So, Jim, you know, I was researching an article written in 2008 where you were quoted, and the article was about scrutiny of officials and the accuracy of the calls. And back in the day in 08, there was a stat in the article that said, basically, for every 100 plays, 97.64% of them are officiated correctly, and on average— Officials make four mistakes a game. And it got me to thinking, are the expectations of fans just flat-out unrealistic? And in the sense of, you know, players are making mistakes in the game, they're throwing interceptions, they're dropping passes. Coaches are making mistakes in the game. I'm sure they're all making four mistakes a game. So are the expectations just flat-out unrealistic? There are two things about the fans. First of all, fans want their team to win. They don't care about fair play. They want their team to win. My definition of fan market for a long time has been a fan is a guy who sits in the 60th row of the stadium and criticizes me for not calling holding in the middle of the line of scrimmage. And when he goes to the parking lot, he can't find his car. <laughs> That's great. So it, it, they, they really want their – and we, we want perfection too. Officials want to get every play right now. Perfection is not really possible. A quarterback, if he's got a 50, 60 degree perfection in completion of passes, he's a pretty good quarterback. 
But we can't run it on 50 or 60% accuracy. We've got to run on 100%, and sometimes we make a mistake. Four mistakes in a game with 156 plays every game, four mistakes, eh, not bad. But we'd like to make it three or two or one or none. So, 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 Jim, one one last question about replay before we move past that. Do you do you see? You know, we're seeing it more in baseball now. They're talking about having a, a computerized strike zone and things like that. Do you see officials eventually being archaic and just simply not even being involved and replaced by technology? They have a game I guess called Madden Twenty Twenty. <laughs> it's a video replay, and you can you can get that game, and you can do all kinds of things with it. I hope it never gets away from a a people game. It's getting closer to being away from it now with all the replays. Uh, I, I hope it doesn't get to the point where we're doing everything on the replay. That's not the football game. The game is people. And we're people, and they're people, and it does happen that you're going to make a mistake. Coach, you've told me for years, so a mistake is made. So we, we, next time it'll, the, the, the ball bounce in our favor, and we'll get the break. Jim, uh, do you, so do don't you... worry about the ones that go against you, but just Play the game and bounce back. And, and this is one of the things that I've talked to people uh, in the in the corporate world about uh, in sales or management. And don't worry about a thing that makes a mistake. Move on. Forget about that. Learn from it, but forget about that. And sales, if you don't make the sale, why didn't you make the sale? Well, here's a reason for it. Let's see if we can improve. I think uh, players and coaches learn a lot more from mistakes that are made during a game than from the things they do right. They made a nice long pass and everything, but they made a pass that was incomplete. How can we improve that? So when you have a mistake made, you learn better from from your mistake than you do from just constantly being successful. Jim, you know, I think you articulated that so beautifully, and I find, and I'd love to get your take on this, and I know you do a lot of work with companies. Why is it so hard for professionals, A, to be accountable and own their mistakes, and B, to to take that kind of mindset, that growth mindset you're talking about and embrace failure, learn from mistakes. What are you seeing as the challenge behind them doing those things? Ego. Yeah. Uh, Ken Blanchard told me a long time ago, ego is edging God out. And, and you've got to put your ego aside and be able to admit your mistake. When we have a mistake in a game that I work and, and Supervisor McNally would call me and say, you yeah, Look at this play, and so and so. You made this, and you should have been doing this. What what caused you to look here instead of there? Try to learn from it, and you got to admit, say, yeah, Mr. McDowell, I I did look at that a different way. I'll do it different next time. Learning from mistakes is what life is all about. And then, of course, Lombardi has been quoted so many times: failure is not getting knocked down; failure is, failure is not getting back up. And so. When you have a mistake, you're going to bounce back, move on, forget about it, learn from it, but don't carry it with you the whole time and think about the mistake. Think about what you can do to do it better. Words to live by, indeed, Jim. So when we come back, when we come back, Jim joins us for our next segment. We're going to talk more about his experience in corporate America, and we're going to also talk about if and how he gets impacted by home crowds and the emotion during games. And, Jim, you know, when we the other thing I'd like to cover when we come back is also – um, kind of your expectations of communication um, between coaches and yourself and between athletes to yourself and where you share some latitude or offer latitude and where you don't. So we'll be back after the break. I'm with Jim Tunney, Dean of NFL Referees. I'm your host, Mark Altman, for I Communicate. So 
Communicate continues on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman. Welcome back to I Communicate, uh, back with uh, NFL referee, former NFL referee Jim Tunney. And Jim, I want to talk about emotion. And um, one of my favorite things to work with people of all ages on is emotional intelligence. And I don't know if you heard, but uh, four days ago in Massachusetts, a hockey coach attacked a referee. Are you familiar with that video? I I saw it one time. I think yes. Okay, so you know you used to be a coach. You know, coach kids, and I'm just trying to understand from your perspective what what goes through the from from a boundaries from a barriers. What the heck happens to fans? I mean, I know they want to see their teams win, but how does how does it go from the crossing that kind of line in your mind? I think it helps you if you've been a coach and an official. I, I was doing both at the same time at the high school level when I first started. And having been a coach, I can understand the emotion because I was an emotional guy on the, on the bench as a coach, too, in high school basketball. And you, you do get excited. And as a fish, you have to understand that coaches are going to get excited. They're going to do things and say things that they really don't mean. And don't, don't take them personally. Don't take the fact that they're... They're saying the fact that your mother and father were never really married or whatever kind of words they use to, to <laughs> describe. You have to understand that. Now, you don't have to take it. You can walk over and just say, that's enough. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, you mentioned earlier about the books that I've written. The first book I wrote was called Impartial Judgment. And I wanted to call the book uh, because I don't care who wins, but the publisher in New York didn't like that title, so <laughs> he called it Impartial Judgment. I wrote a whole chapter about John Madden, and he called it Ode to a Teddy Bear, because he was all over the place, yelling and screaming and waving his hands and all that sort of thing. And John and I had an understanding early on. He's been a good friend over the years. Uh, we were in Los Angeles, and he was very upset about a call right near the end of the first half. He came running on the field and grabbed me by the arm and was yelling and screaming. And I stopped in my tracks. I was right in the middle of the field. I said, Coach, leave the field right now. Right now. No saying else, or you're not coming back the second half. <laughs> and he left at the beginning of the second half as we were coming on the field. He grabbed me and said, hey, I'm sorry. I said, you know, I just get emotional, and I, I didn't mean it and all that. I said, John, I understand, but you can't make a public display in front of 77,000 people. They think that. They don't think you're inviting me for dinner. They're trying to <laughs> trying to get on get on me on your side, and I, I just need to knock it off sometimes. The thing about John when I wrote the first book and I wrote that chapter about John Madden, Ode to a Teddy Bear, uh, he said the thing. Uh, he said, "Who are these guys? What kid grows up wanting to be an official for God's sake?" And so uh, John and I always got along. He said, "I think." 
He said in the book, he said, the thing I like about Tim Tunney is that he said he would come over and talk with you. And that's the thing about communication. Don't be afraid to talk to the coach. You don't have to stand there and let him berate you all the time. He may say a couple of things, and I've said to many coaches, including uh, Tom Landry, including John Wooden, when I did basketball at Pauley Pavilion, I say, that's enough. That's enough. And then they walk away. And when they, you say it with authority and look a right square in the eye and not being afraid of them, uh, that helps you communicate, communicate with people. So in communication, it's important you, you're willing to talk to people and if they say something that is derogatory, let it go for a minute, but then you need to stop it after a while. Jim, I, I know you do a lot of work with organizations on leadership and peak performance, and you've got me thinking as you were answering that. Let's talk about body language for a minute. You know, from your perspective, you know, we're taught to make eye contact and, and have good posture and traditional body language, but I'm talking more about, you know, when you when you do when you are assertive and say that's enough, you know, is it sometimes better just to to take eye contact away? Or does the eye contact, you know, from a communication perspective in your world, is it better to make it towards the end or is it better to not make it towards the end? It, it can both work both ways. Uh, sometimes you don't need to go over to the coach. Sometimes you need to just be on the field. But I call it I call it personal power. I call it personal power versus position power. You can't walk on the field as a referee and say, hey, you know who I am? I'm the referee, and I'm in charge of this game. And you better not step out of line. That's not going to work. But personal power means that you could take some abuse to a point, to the point where it's, it's, it's taking away from the, the element of the game. And then you need to shut it off and walk away. And that's the thing about football. You can walk out in the middle of the field, sometimes in basketball, they're right there screaming, hollering, yelling at you. And, and when that happened to me, and I worked basketball for 25 years at, at the college level, I would, I would go over near the coach. When he was on the bench or screaming and hollering, I'd be right. The closer you get to him, the less he yelled. When you're further away, the more he yelled at you. And I thought, well, my personal power is I can I can handle it. He knows I can handle it, and I'll just shut it off by being close to him. So it depends on the situation, but but feeling good about yourself and knowing you're doing the right thing and not listening to the, the abuse that may be coming your way just. Just shake it off and just keep on going. Jim, you know, I think one of the common uh, assumptions about officiating is that officials get swept up by the emotion of the home crowd and, you know, hence the home advantage. And so t- could you could you speak to a couple of things? First of all, you know, should we look at it as, look, officials are human. It's possible from time to time it influences calls and they swept, they're swept up or was your point of view that you were very mindful and conscious to not let that happen? Where do you sit on that? Very mindful about it. In fact, uh, in, in terms of, they call them homers, and you call them in favor of the home crowd. And I never did like that expression. And then they say, well, now, you call that one, then the call went a little, and you're evening it up. <laughs> evening up is like trying to even up your sideburns when you're shaving. You never quite <laughs> get them the same the same all the way. You can never even things up. Call it as it is. If it was a wrong call, you can't say, yeah, that was a wrong call. I'll take care of it the next the next quarter. I'll even it up. No, 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 no. Don't try to ever even up. Just call it the way you see it and call it and, and make the call and then move on. Don't worry about it. If you've called against this team that was a, happened to turn out to be a wrong call, 
It happens. It's going to happen. And you can't worry about that. Uh, players make mistakes. Coaches make mistakes. Officials go make mistakes. Jim, what do you see today when you watch officials on TV? Frankly, it could be in basketball, football, whatever. What do you see today that you you might see a certain behavior of an official that you're sitting at home scratching your head going, I can't believe they're doing that. What are some things <laughs> you're seeing that scratch your head? You mentioned it earlier, Mark, it, it's body language. And, and uh, it, it's like giving a signal for a referee in, in football. I was the trainer for the NFL for a few years, and I always said to the watching, particularly the referee, the guy in the white hat, the crew chief, the one who gives the signals on television, I said, the camera's going to find you. Come over to a spot on the field, stand still, feet together, and look right at the camera. Look right at that red light on that camera, and look right into the guy sitting in his living room and say, holding, number 56, and, and, and say it with confidence. But your body language is very, very important. If it doesn't look like you're sure of yourself, in fact, let me digress to Lombardi from that. Coach Lombardi was very tough on officials, very tough on officials. Only there are two things he looked for. Number one, were you in the right position to make the call? He knew who you should be to make that kind of call. And number two, did you make it with confidence? Or did you look like you were hesitant? Did you not throw the flag with authority? Did you look like you were unsure of what you were doing? If you were unsure of what you're doing, he was after you. If you're in the right position and you made the call away, he was after you. Other than that, it was okay. If you called against the Packers, I've called lots of fouls against the Packers. And, and it was okay with Coastal Marty because he knew you were in the right position and you made the call with confidence. Your body language, as you mentioned earlier, Mike, is, is very important to have confidence in what you're doing, standing erect, and moving where you know you're supposed to be. So, Jim, you know, one last question on this is, you know, in that same article I was referring to in 2008 with you on The Times, you talked about how it's easy for officials to get intimidated. And my question really speaks to the work you do with organizations and your officiating. Look, it's one thing for you to mentor um, a CEO or you to mentor another official and say, look, it's very important to not get intimidated. It's very important to have good body language. But you know, building the habit and incorporating the habit is something totally different. How were you able to build some of these habits to continue to develop as a professional? I think it's a secret. It's really not a secret, but everybody uses that expression. The secret is preparation. Prepare yourself so well. I've often thought that I want to know the rules better than anybody else in that stadium. 80,000 people, coaches, players, I want to know the rule better than they do. I want to know why the rule is in there and how we enforce the rule. And the preparation that you spend prior to the game, preparation you spend as a CEO prior to your meeting, as a salesperson prior to the sales, preparation is vital. I'm always reminded of the fact that Noah, Noah built that ark before it started to rain. And so I think you could go into the situation well-prepared, your confidence level is at a higher level. Indeed. And that's important. The confidence of my language comes from your thorough preparation. All right, Jim, I want to quickly ask you for a quick comment on three games that you officiated. First of all, the ice bowl. Question for you. Have you ever been in an environment that cold? Mark, I live in California. <laughs> my blood is very thin. <laughs> and I wanted, we flew into Green Bay on Saturday. It was a beautiful evening. We dinner that night. The moon was out. It was everything was fine. The next day, the temperature had dropped 
we we didn't we we were not prepared. I wasn't prepared. <coughs> so the entire crew of six went downtown Green Bay <coughs> and knocked on the Army Navy store. It was December thirty first. The guy was doing his inventory. If he went December thirty first, he wouldn't have been there on a, on a Sunday morning. We got him to open the door. He didn't want to open the door. We bought everything we could: long johns and gloves and everything we could to keep warm. So. Yeah. It was just, it was very difficult to work that game. Okay, next game, the catch. Um, the significance of that Dwight Clark play. Do, do you, when you're officiating a game like that and you see that, do, do, does it ever cross your path what the historical significance of a play will be right then and there as before time unfolds? Number one, I didn't see the catch because my job was following the quarterback, Montana. Okay. And Joe Montana rolled to the right. As he threw the ball, he got knocked down by Ed Tall Jones. My job was looking at him. And Joe was on the ground. He looked up. He said, what happened? I said, you threw it in the stands. (laughs) (laughs) He said, what? I said, no, Joe. Do I DC? We call him DC. DC caught it for a touchdown. That's great. But but I never thought about the fact that it it was that significant. It's one of the top four games in the history of the NFL that ESPN had on the other night, or Network had on the other night, but it's a, it was a historic game, and, and both of them, Joe Montana and Dwight Clark, God love him, Dwight, who passed away with ALS, but, but uh, wonderful people who work on the field were very pleasant on the field. All right, Jim, we're going to go come back for one more segment. Thank you for continuing to be with us, and uh, uh, thank you, Jim Tunney, for staying with us. I'm Mark Altman for iCommunicate. We'll be back right after the break. Now, I Communicate continues on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman. Welcome back to I Communicate. I'm with uh, Jim Tunney, uh, former NFL official, dean of referees, three-time author, uh, more than three-time author, and many other accolades to his resume. Jim, uh, before we go to our final topic today, I do want to ask you about one other game, um, the fumble, the game with Cleveland and Denver. And, you know, my question for you about that game is when, you know, we use the term choke in sports a lot when, when players make mistakes in the clutch. Does your heart, you know, even though you're an official and you can't be partial to either team, when when you see plays like that and guys disappoint, does your heart break for them? To, what goes through your mind when you see stuff like that? Let me go back uh, for a second before I answer that regarding the catch. First of all, uh, between Joe Montana and Dwight Clark, Montana doesn't call it the catch. He calls it the throw. <laughs> that makes sense. Not surprised. I mean, sure. And the second thing about the importance of the game the game wasn't over. We still had about a minute and a half That's left, right. and and uh, Danny Danny White, the quarterback of the Cowboys, was coming to. He wanted to come back down the field like Montana did, and the Cowboys wanted to win the game, and he fumbled the ball, uh, and he wanted to call an incomplete pass. And I said, No, no, Danny, it was fumbled. Now replay was was uh, uh, not available at the time, so there was no looking at it. It was just his word and mine. And of course, it turned out. As you look at the replay, it definitely was a fumble. Regarding the, the fumble again in in, uh, in 
Mile-High Stadium before they built this new stadium between the the Cleveland Browns and the and the Denver Broncos. Uh, I worked the game before a year before in Cleveland. Oh boy, Elway made that eighty-five yard drive to win the game. Uh. But you know when you see a, a fumble like Ernest Biner, what a wonderful, wonderful guy Ernest Biner is. But just before that, they're down the goal. They're down the what fifteen twenty yard line, and Bernie. Kozar calls time out, and he went over to talk to Marty Schottenheimer as the coach of the Browns. And when he came back, I mean, the, the place is just tense as ever. Here's the driving Browns coming in to win the game, and all you got to do is hand it to Ernest Miner, and he'd get in the end zone, and it's over and all. And when Bernie came back in, I said, uh, does it help you to go over there and talk to the coach? He said, "No, what makes him feel better when I do that?" <laughs> <laughs> we, we, it was all—it's it, a game, Mark, and, and so we have fun with it out there. But when Bernie, when Ernie Biner fumbled the ball and Denver recovered it right then, yeah, I, I watched uh, Biner go over to the bench as we had a little time out there, and the, the players were all over him, patting him on the back. It's okay, shake it off, don't worry about it. But China was a great gesture in terms. They lost the game on that fumble because all all Denver had to do was just hang on the ball for a short time, and they won the game. But they were they were patting Ernie, Ernest Biner on the back and making him feel good, and it's okay, and shake it off. You don't lose the game on one play. You lose the game because you didn't play as well as the other team, and that's the difference. Indeed. So, so Jim, want to want to shift to two two final thoughts uh, before we wrap up today. First of all. I want to talk about coaching youth sports. You know, you've you've coached for many years in your career. My question is, what's changed? You know, in terms of you know, kids are playing sports all year round, AAU and things like that. You know, what advice do you give coaches of youth sports today? What are the things that you see coaches not doing that you're trying to encourage them to do? A friend of mine who played for the Baltimore coach named Joe Erdman. You might remember that name. Yep. Joe Erdman wrote a book that I feel very very strong about. You coach from the inside out. You're coaching a player because he. I can't remember, and all the basketball and all sports I played in high school and college, I can't remember if we won championships and what our record was and all that, but I do remember the friendships that I made and the people who helped me when times were tough and the times I got to help people when they made a mistake. That's the thing that you learn about sports, and that's what coaches need to think about. Unfortunately, today we have too many coaches that have never been educators. They didn't go through the program of being educators. In order to teach and, and coach in, in Los Angeles City Schools, where I was for a number for 25 years, you you got to go through the teaching program, and you got to go and come in as an educator, not just a coach. And so, what you're coaching kids is from the inside out how they can learn from mistakes. So you lose the game because the kid didn't do what he's supposed to, that you've been teaching him for, for for 10 weeks, and all of a sudden he made a mistake. He didn't want to make that mistake. Nobody goes into the game saying, well, let's see, today I'm going to make a mistake. No, no. You do avoid that all you can. You need to help people re- recover from times that, that are tough for them. Jim, I, I want to ask, I know you do a lot of work, you know, Jim, as a, as a national trainer and speaker. I want to talk, I know you do a lot of work around motivation. And my question for you is, were you ever underestimated at any point in your career? Did you use that as a driver for motivation? And 
regardless, how do you motivate yourself? Well, first of all, I like the term inspiration rather than motivation. Okay. I don't think you can motivate anybody. You can inspire them to do something, but the motivation from everybody has to come from within. You can get ideas from other people, but in order for you to move forward, you have to motivate yourself. You can learn from other people, and that's where the word inspiration comes in. And for the second part of it, <clears throat> I, I never thought I was very good at what I did. I, I thought I was I was uh, just uh, uh, another guy playing basketball in high school or, or baseball in college, and uh, I never thought of myself in any sense of the word as a superstar. So I was always thought that, that I was I was lucky to be there. I was glad to have a glove on to be a first baseman. I was glad to to be bring the ball down the court as a as a what we call shooting guards or or point guards or whatever you want to call them. I was just lucky to be there. I, I was very fortunate to to play with some really good players, and, and that helped a lot. But uh, I had to build that confidence in myself. I sat on the bench, Mark, a lot more times than I played, <laughs> unfortunately. And, and I wanted to play every day, every time, every game. I wanted to be the guy on the floor. And it didn't always happen that way. But it's important to build your confidence and maintain it. In fact, Herm Edwards is a good friend of mine, coach of Arizona State football now. He said, he said you can lose your confidence, but don't ever lose your momentum. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. What, what do you want your legacy to be, Jim? You know, um, how do you want how do you want to be known for as a person, as a professional? What are your thoughts? Did I do the best I could with other people? Did I help them become better at their lives? And not just better basketball players or better hitters in baseball or better uh, run, fullbacks or running backs in, in football. Did I, did I make them better as an individual? I help them improve their lives to become successful people. Do you have a favorite official today, Jim? That you're that uh, you enjoy watching? And today's uh, there's so many good officials in the NFL now that that aren't getting the credit for being good officials. Um, Jerry Markbright has been a friend of mine. He's a former NFL official. Mm-hmm. I think there are four rules in the Super Bowl games. Uh, Jerry's just terrific at what he did. Uh, Ed Hockley is very famous for his bodybuilding, but he's also a very good official and a very good rules man. And look at officials as how do also they not only know the rules, but interpret them properly. That's awesome. Okay, and final question for you today, Jim. Thank you again so much for joining the show. Uh, is most fond NFL memory of your career? Well, Mark, I guess after uh, 500 NFL games, it has to be uh, Super Bowl eleven, played January ninth, uh, nineteen seventy-seven, in the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California. I grew up just four miles from Rose Bowl, a little town called San Gabriel. Yep. And I, I would go to the, the Rose Bowl. My dad was an official, as I mentioned before. I would go and I get to sit on the bench in the games that my dad was working there when he was working officiating for Pasadena Junior College. A little kid named Jackie Robinson was playing for Pasadena Junior College. And so was a Jackie's just 10 years older than I. And I got to sit on the bench alongside of Jackie Robinson when he was just Jackie Robinson. That's unbelievable. <laughs> and, and, uh, and be able to see that man. And then I got a chance to work Super Bowl 11, January 9th, 1977, between Oakland and Minnesota. I worked in the same place that my dad had worked. That was probably the biggest, one of the biggest thrills for me.
Jim, thank you again for your time. Really look forward to having the opportunity to meet you at some point. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the week. For Mark Altman, I am the host of Mindset Go, or founder of Mindset Go, host of iCommunicate. Hope you have a great rest of the week. Signing off. Thanks, Ted. Thanks, Ted.